If you have your Bible, let's turn to Romans chapter 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, then please take one of the pew Bibles that's around you, one of these black Bibles, and you can turn in there. I believe it's on page 946 in that Bible. will be in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6 today. We are continuing in Romans this week. Next week, we'll take a little bit of a break and look at the story of the resurrection of Jesus uh, in anticipation that we'll have a number of people who come needing to hear that story maybe for the first time. And I do want to encourage you too, if you're going to invite anybody to church, there's no week when they're more likely to take you up on it than Easter Sunday or Resurrection Day, whatever you want to call it. But um, that's, that is an opportunity right there. So, uh, so if you've had on your mind, maybe I ought to invite my neighbor to church. Maybe I invite this person, that person, my relative. Uh, this is going to be a really, really good week to invite people. So uh, keep that in your head and let it come out of your mouth. And we'd love to see, uh, see him here next week. But today we're continuing through the book of Romans. In Romans 11, 1 through 6, here is what the Lord has told us through Paul's pen. It says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. There you go. So today we have this beautiful grace, this beautiful message of a faithful God who will not reject his people, and the reason is because of his grace, because there is a remnant chosen by grace. I want you to remember, maybe you're remembering or maybe you're hearing for the first time, maybe you haven't been around for some of these previous sermons, but we're in a section of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11, that's a section dealing with the question of what is going on with the reality that so few Jewish people have believed in Jesus. Jesus is the one who was prophesied throughout the entire Old Testament. He's the one that everything was leading up to. He is the king of the Jews, the savior of the Jews. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king all together. He is the very God, a very God, the one who spoke the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai to all the people. And here he has come and taken on humanity and lived and taught in their very presence died on the cross in accordance with the scriptures, was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so why is it that this gospel that is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, as it says in Romans chapter 1, why is it that so few of the Jewish people have embraced the Savior of the Jews, the, the Messiah whose name is Jesus and he's answered that in a couple of different ways. Chapter 9 has mainly been about God's sovereignty in all of that. And we're going to run into that when we get to verse 5 in this passage today, that there is a remnant chosen by God's grace, that God has sovereignly chosen some and not others for this salvation. 
But then in Romans 10, he makes it very, very clear that this is not just about what's going on with God, that it's also about the reality that those who would believe must believe. And we have a human responsibility and that there have been so, so many among the Jewish people as he got to, in, especially in the, second, the, the last portion of Romans 10, who, whose hearts have just been hardened, who, who would not look to Jesus in faith. Their eyes seem to have been closed, and they just decided to be this disobedient and contrary people. All day long, I held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people is where we ended up at the end of chapter 10. And so then that raises the question, but what is the role of ethnic Israel, of the Jewish people? What is the role? And that's what chapter 11 is going to be all about and I just have to say that as we get there, and we, as we come to this chapter, it's going to raise some questions. It's going to get interpreted different ways by people who have different interpretive schemes when they look at the Bible. And I have to mention one of the most popular, probably the most popular scheme of interpreting the Bible in America right now, which is called dispensationalism. All right, so the reason I'm bringing this up is not because I want to go after John MacArthur as a heretic or something like that. That's not the idea. It's just because when we get to chapter 11, we're going to see some differences in how different branches of interpretation would see different things relating to this. And what is dispensationalism? If you've never heard that term before, that's okay. Uh, All right, that's fine. But you might be a dispensationalist, and you don't know it, and that's okay too, although I'm not going to preach it that way, because I don't think that that's what's taught here. But just to know what it is, it's a system of Bible interpretation that seems to have been invented about 200 years ago. We don't really have any evidence of anyone in Christian history interpreting the Bible that way until about 200 years ago. But then it started to catch on, and it became extremely popular by about 100 years ago, Uh, so much so that uh, during that fundamentalist modernist controversy of the 1920s that um, it was almost just assumed if you don't hold to this scheme of Bible interpretation, then you must be a liberal. That's the way that it was thought of. It had caught on so much by that point, which is, to me, very surprising since it was a very, very young system of thinking. But mainly what it is, it's, it's this way of interpreting the Bible that's based on seeing a really sharp distinction between Israel and the church, both in terms of who they are, that Israel is one entity completely and the church is another entity completely, not just in terms of who they are, though, but also in terms of how God would deal with these different groups of people that God has a certain plan for Israel and that God has a different plan for the church. That's kind of what it's all based on. That's where you get the idea that, again, we can't really find it around hardly anywhere until 200 years ago, the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture so that the rapture and the second coming are not the same event. Well, the reason that, that they, that's seen there is because there has to be some kind of a scheme where God would get the people of the church out of the way and then deal with the people of Israel. So those kinds of things. And and a lot of dispensationalist Christians today don't know the word dispensationalism. It's okay. A lot have just uh, absorbed it as a system that they've grown up in church knowing. It's not a system that I grew up absorbing. Not because I was in some uh, some uh, reformed covenantal church, but because I just 
I, I was kind of in liberal churches. I didn't know it, all right? But that's why for me, but as I've come to the scriptures, I just haven't quite seen that system that so many other people grew up in, but I do know that a lot of people love it, and a lot of people are faithful Bible teachers and faithful church members here. And so the reason I'm talking about this is not because I'm trying to create divisions. I don't want to create divisions. This is not something worth creating divisions over. We're not bringing this up in the same way that I would talk about the prosperity gospel or the Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that. But just because getting to Romans 11, I just want to be up front uh, that that uh, th- that system that some have grown up with is is just I don't think it's what's here. And I, I'll give you a couple of reasons for that. One is that dispensationalism claims to be the most literal and straightforward way of understanding the Bible. I hear that all the time. Well, it's just the literal interpretation, but it just doesn't quite seem like that is so straightforward if, if nobody ever saw it in the Bible for about the first 1,800 years of Christian history. Uh, and, and another thing, it claims to be very literal and straightforward, but there, there have been lots of different varieties of it, and the varieties that are popular today are pretty different than the varieties that were popular 100 years ago, and so it may not be quite as straightforward as it claims. It, another thing is that there are some older versions of it that... Um, that really seem to have had some serious, serious problems, and I don't think that anybody here would hold to these older versions, but, but some of those versions would have split up the New Testament and said, here is the books of the New Testament that are for Jews, and here are the books of the New Testament that are for Gentiles, and, and you don't have to worry about the other list if you're not among that group. And that just doesn't seem to really be there in the Scripture to me. I can't even remember whether they say that the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount is for Jews or Gentiles, but it's for one or the other, and I just don't, I don't see how that could be. And some, even back in, in the formation of that doctrine, would say, well, there are two different Gospels. That when the Bible uses the term gospel of the kingdom, that's talking about one way for Jewish people to be saved. And when it talks about the gospel of grace, well, that's the way for Gentile people to be saved. And certainly the Bible says that's not the case at all. If there is someone who's preaching to you another gospel, says Paul in Galatians 1, then let him be accursed. So there are some temptations and some, some different kinds of ways of looking at it. It also would call Jews and Christians to put their hope in a future peace, hope for the future, and a piece of land in the Middle East, where the New Testament says that Old Testament believers in Hebrews eleven sixteen that they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Or in Hebrews eleven ten, it says that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Or in Hebrews 13, 14, that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Or in Colossians 3, 2, that we set our minds on things above and not on things that are on earth. So just a few things there. But, but really, I, uh, I don't want to talk about it too much, partly because I just have trouble understanding dispensationalism because I just don't see it in the Bible. But that's okay if you see it. We can arm wrestle after church, okay? And if, if there's a pre-tribulational rapture that's not the same event as the second coming of Christ, and we are on our way up into the clouds together, I will high-five you. And I'll be very, very happy about that, all right? So, 
But all that just to say, we need to look at Romans chapter 11 and think seriously, what does the text of the scripture say is the role of the nation of Israel? And when I say nation of Israel, I'm not talking about uh, the political entity established in the 1940s. I'm talking about the ethnic Jewish people. What is the role that God is talking about here? And I'll just tell you just an overview of what I think the Bible says. The Bible says that ethnic Israel is a people that God chose to use for special purposes. And especially the main purpose was using that people to send us the Christ, the Son of God. What it said back in Romans 9 is this, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So God used this people for special purposes, especially to send Christ. But the Bible also uses the word Israel in another way, not just talking about the ethnic Jewish people, but also there is the sense that it uses Israel where it's talking about the true spiritual Israel. He does that in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as an offspring. Or as it says in Galatians 6.15, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Do you hear that? The Israel of God, he's defining as those not among this group or that group, but those who are a new creation in Christ. That true spiritual Israel, it existed within the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, those who were the elect, believing people within that national, visible people. And now that Christ has come, that true spiritual Israel is made visible as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that's made up of people both from the Jews and the Gentiles, that God has torn down the dividing wall of hostility in the cross and made out of two people, one, one people of God. It says that the Gentiles become children of Abraham when they come to possess the faith of Abraham. This is in Galatians 3, verse 7. He says, know then that it is those who of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. And hear this, So then it is those who are of faith who are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We're going to see as we get further into Romans chapter 11 that Israel is presented to us as this olive tree and that God hasn't gotten rid of the olive tree but he's broken off the unbelieving branches, and he has grafted in other branches. Believers from the Gentiles are brought in and made part of this true people of God. So God hasn't replaced Israel. What God has done is God has reorganized it. He's reorganized it as a people that are defined by a common faith instead of being defined by a common ancestry. 
okay? A people defined by a common faith rather than a common ancestry. That might get me in trouble with the Presbyterians to say too. I don't know. I don't know. But there also seems to be some indication, and we'll see this as we get toward the end of Romans 11, that God still has plans to bring in a large number of Jewish people into the true spiritual Israel in the future. And we hope for that, and we pray for that, and we look forward to the possibility of seeing that, and we need to evangelize toward that end as well. But with all that having been said, I'm just trying to lay it out there very clearly where we're coming from here and what I think we're going to see in Romans chapter 11 and how that might or might not be different from what you grew up in church believing, depending on where you grew up in church, who knows, right? But let's just look at this. The question in chapter 11 verse 1 is this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And the answer, no way, by no means, absolutely not. The question here is brought up by the fact of what it just said. As he, as he got to the end of chapter 10, it seemed a little bit harsh against the nation of Israel, against the Jewish people, against Paul's own people that he says that he longs for and prays for with unceasing anguish in his heart. But he says that they are a disobedient and contrary people that God has held out his hands to all the day long. And so one natural question that might rise out of that, if Paul had just stopped at the end of chapter 10 and not continued to write chapter 11, there could have been this question, well, does that mean that God just gave up on ethnic Israel altogether? Did God just give up on the people, the Jews, the, the, the Jewish people and say, so long, see ya, I'm going to get somebody else in, in here. And he says, the answer to that is, by no means, absolutely not. Don't start to think that God has given up on ethnic Israel, by no means. As a reminder, Paul brings that, that wording in every once in a while when he knows that he could be horribly misunderstood because of some kind of a point that he's making. Like when he came to the end of of chapter 5, and he had talked about how when sin increases, that grace abounded all the more. And then the question is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And what does he say? By no means. Absolutely not. He's saying, I know I could get misunderstood to say this, but it is not the case. And he says the same here. He's saying, I could get misunderstood to be saying that God gave up on the Jewish people, but by no means has he. Now, why would he not do that? Because he said he wouldn't. Here's, here's what it says in 1 Samuel 12, 22. He says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Or in Psalm 94, 14, he says, The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. So it said this directly multiple times in the Old Testament. I will not forsake my people. And the question is, has he though? By no means. Absolutely not. What does this look like though? Does it mean that by not forsaking his people that therefore every single Jewish person of all time is definitely going to heaven? Well, that's not what it says either. Because there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It is through Christ alone. 
Here's, here's an explanation. I love the way that I got this from a Lutheran pastor named Chad Bird, and I've, I've heard a couple things that have been beneficial from him lately, but here's the way that he put it. He said, when Jesus came, he did not move out of the, the Israel house to build a new church house next door. Rather, he moved into the Israel house and began knocking down walls, pouring concrete, adding rooms and floors, and throwing on wings to the house. He made the one house bigger. Paul describes how Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility so that he might create one new man in the place of the two, Jews and Gentiles, from Ephesians 2. So then, in Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, as it says in Galatians 3.28. Guys, we have good news here. God does not forsake his people. Now, we've been speaking a little bit abstractly. I know I talked about dispensationalism, which might have gotten, you know, certain personalities in here might have started thinking to themselves, well, I'm, you know, I I was going to have a quiet time today, but instead I'm going to go find out how the dispensationalists are wrong. Um, you know, the, there's some people who are on that, that mindset and then others who are like, oh, let's just not talk about that. I don't know, I don't know. But here's, here's a beautiful thing. God does not forsake his promises. And God does not forsake his people. This is something you, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, need to know. Regardless of how you're going to come down on the issue of the relationship between Israel and the Gentile church and, and God's plan for these promises and these promises and how to put together the rapture and all that kind of stuff, for just a second, listen to this. Listen, there is a God in the heavens who has shown his love and care for sinners like you and me, and he will not forsake us. When he brings us in, He's not kicking us out. God is faithful, and he will bring us to the end. And when he talks about how he hasn't forsaken Israel in particular, he's going to clarify a little bit by giving some examples. So that's point two in your outline on the back of your bulletin, is that he gives us some proof that God has not forsaken Israel. Here's the first proof. Paul. He says, look at me. Look at my life. Not me, Paul. Here's the, here's the proof in the second half of verse 1. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Here's what he says. If God had forsaken Israel, if God were done with the Jewish people, then God would not have pursued and saved and appointed Paul as an apostle. Sure, I mean, you, you could think back and, and, and think to those original apostles who were walking around with Jesus before his crucifixion and resurrection, and, and you could say, well, yes, of course, all of those guys were Jewish because that, that was before God gave up on his plan A for the Jews and then started this plan B for the Gentiles. But Paul says, no, look at my life. I was... I was trained up under Gamaliel. I I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He talks about all of these accomplishments that he has. I'm getting a lot of this from Philippians chapter 3 where he lists all of this out. And he says, in all of that, I was so good at it 
that I was a persecutor of the Lord Jesus Christ and his people, the church. I was so zealous that I was absolutely against Jesus and his people. But Paul says, look at the grace that God had toward Israel. Because he had grace toward me. If God had given up on Israel, he would not have pursued this pharisaical persecutor of the church to save his soul and to make him an apostle to the Gentiles. God has done a great thing in Paul. And when he says this, he's also implying, look at every other Jewish believer that there is. That is a beautiful thing. When you see that God has brought in those from ethnic Israel into his true people, the church. Not just, not just the, the olive tree with branches, but the, the vine that is Christ. To be branches on the vine of Jesus. He says that is a beautiful example. So that's proof number one. Look at Paul's life. He is a, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, and there he is brought into Jesus. Second proof that he gives, that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What he's saying is, look at God's character. You can look at Paul's life and see it, but then turn, turn and think about God himself. This is a proof of just saying, let's hold on just a second. Let's reflect on who God is. He already did that a little bit in the first half of, of chapter 1, where he says, by no means has God rejected his people, but he's making this clear here. It is not in God's character to change. It is not in God's character to forsake his covenant. It's not in God's character to give up on his people. And he says he did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Now, it may be when it says foreknew, he may be specifically talking about those who are the chosen, the elect within Israel whom he foreknew. It may be that he's talking about the reality that he had this relationship that he had previously established with ethnic Israel. In fact, it's kind of both. But in both of those things, he's saying, look, this is based on the character of God. And God's not going to change. Here's what God had said. This is back in Exodus 3, verse 14. This is when when God had had was about to bring the people out of Egypt together. But God was, was revealing himself to Moses in that burning bush, and Moses said, who do I say that you are? When I go and I bring your message, who, who do I say that you are? And he said, I am who I am. You hear that? I am who I am. That right there, that tells you he's not going to change. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is a God who is not going to change is not going to forsake his people, and he makes it clear in Malachi 3 6. Right? You might want to write that one down. Malachi 3 6. This is one you can go to. Okay. He says, For I the Lord do not change. 
Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I'm going to read it again. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, he says, that is the reason. My character, not your character, my unchanging character is the reason, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. We, we need to know that personally, by the way. Aren't you so glad that whether or not you are going to be consumed by the fires of hell isn't dependent on how good your character is day to day? It's dependent on the God who does not change. We trust in him. We trust in him. And he says here, I'm also not going to change in relation to the reality that I will have a people for myself from this ethnic Israel. And then he says in verse 2, the second half, another proof. So we had the proof of Paul's life. We had the proof of God's character. And now he's going to give the proof of the example in Scripture. And he could have given lots of examples from the Old Testament, but an Old Testament example of, of Elijah. Now, I, I, we, I, we already read this passage, and, and he's quoting here from 1 Kings 19, verses 8 through 18, and, and various verses within that. I'm just going to read you the whole story, okay? You ready for story time? It's Old Testament story time, all right? It says, 1 Kings 19, 8, and he arose, that's Elijah arose, and this was after he had been driven out by Jezebel and Ahab. And they had already had the, the showdown between the Lord and Baal, and the Lord had demonstrated himself to be God, but still the people hadn't turned their hearts. Jezebel and Ahab hadn't turned their hearts, and they were destroying God's prophets. They were destroying people who didn't bow the knee to Baal. And, and Elijah, it says, arose, and he ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God, which, by the way, is another name for Mount Sinai. It's the same mountain where God gave the Ten Commandments. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. Do you hear the point where Elijah was? He, he, he was at a point where he was convinced that he was the only believer left in the nation of Israel. He, he had a sense there, yes, there is this national people that has this kind of outward worldly relationship with God, but there needs to be actual believers within it, and I'm pretty sure I'm the only believer left. I'm pretty sure I'm the only one who knows God out of all of Israel. That's the, not just the feeling, but the belief that came out of, Jesus, out, of, out of Elijah's mouth at this point. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the, the sound of a low whisper. 
which is very differently than he spoke on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, isn't it? And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. But listen to this. This is the other verse that's quoted here in Romans 11. God says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. I read you all that because I, I just I want you to know that story. This is a point in the history of Old Testament Israel where it seemed like Israel was over as far as being God's people. It seemed like they had forsaken his covenant, and so God would forsake them, like Elijah was the only one left. But God says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel. You hear that? Who's the one who does it? It's God. God is the one who says, I am going to make sure that out of this massive, massive people of hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions in Israel, I will keep for myself 7,000 who will not bow the knee to Baal. He's going to keep for himself a believing remnant. What Paul is saying here in Romans 11 is that things have changed in some ways with, with the reality of, of the new covenant in Christ being consummated at the cross, but in other ways, you can look back and you can see the same stuff happening in the Old Testament that it seemed like the true Israel within ethnic Israel had just disappeared and gone, but God kept a people for himself. He didn't forsake them because he chose 7,000 that were going to stay faithful to him in the middle of that. By the way, this is not exactly the point of the passage, but I think we need to hear it. Do you ever feel like you're the only person around who is serving the Lord? I mean, it, it, it is a beautiful thing when we get to gather here on Sunday morning and say, no, wait a second, God has still kept for himself a people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Because all the rest of the week, you might be out at your job, or you might be even among your family who, who may not be believers. You, you could be in school, you could be in this situation, in that situation, even just driving, <laughs> By the way, I hope people can tell that there's something different about you when you're driving. I don't know. But you can look around at the world and say, it's over. There's nobody left. I feel like I'm the only one who is serving the Lord. But God would say to us, no, I have preserved a remnant for myself. I have preserved a remnant who will not bow the knee to Baal. I'll keep them for myself. He does that for us. 
He did that in ancient Israel, and he is still doing that even among the ethnic Jewish people, even among Israel, preserving a remnant for himself. And that's what he says. You know how he explains this in verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. He says, here is how you know that I haven't given up on Israel. Because look, Romans, look, church at Rome, look around at your own church members that you see that you're not just made up of Gentiles, but God has preserved a believing remnant for himself from the Jewish people also and brought them in together and made them one people. He, this is, is just beautiful. He has preserved this remnant, chosen by grace, chosen by grace. You know what that is? That is election, that is predestination, that is all the stuff that we saw in Romans chapter 9 where he went into detail about this, and he says here is how it is that there are those who still believe within Israel. He's, he's essentially saying the remarkable thing is not that so few have believed, the remarkable thing is that there are some who have believed. And the way that they have believed is that God, just like he kept for himself 7,000 in Elijah's day, so too in the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, by God's grace. That, that right there, by the way, this is, this is the reason so often when we talk about the doctrine of election or the other of what we sometimes call the five points of Calvinism, those sorts of things. This is why we call them the doctrines of grace. It's because that's how the Bible presents it. So this is grace. This is not our doing. This is not something that God does in response to our qualities or in response to our works. This is a free gift bestowed by God that he decided to give that he bought with the blood of Jesus, that he puts in our hands and in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, it is grace. It's a remnant chosen by grace, and it ought to make us rejoice when we look around and we see the believing remnant from the Jewish people, when we look around this church and we see the believing remnant right here, when we look in our own hearts and we see that we love Christ, we ought to say, God, thank you for the free gift the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. He, he explains that a little bit in Ephesians 1 where he says that even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And why does it say that he did all this? It says in Ephesians 1.6, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. See, that, that's a big application right there. Here's something you need to do because God has chosen a remnant by grace. We need to praise him. It is for the purpose, to the praise of his glorious grace. Beautiful. And that leads right into verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Would it be grace if it were a reward for doing well? Oh. Would it be grace if it were a wage for works performed? No. It's grace if it is a free gift. 
when you, when you give your children a gift on Christmas morning, do you say to them, I, I calculated how much I would spend on your gift based on the tabulation of your day-to-day behavior throughout the year, and this is what you have earned. No. Do you say to them, I gave a better gift to this child because they're a better child. I hope you don't do that. You're a terrible parent if you do that. (laughs) Do Do you say to your children, you realize what I've given you? You've got a lot of work to do to pay for this. No. You're just glad to see the joy on their face. That's what grace is. This is a free gift. What he says in, back in Romans 6 is, is that the wages, if we're looking for wages, if we're looking for something that we've earned or something that we've deserved from God, all we can have is the wages of sin, which is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If it were earned, if it were deserved, even if it were based on the idea, I foresee that this is the kind of person who will have faith, it wouldn't be grace anymore. It just wouldn't be grace. It's not on the basis of any of those things, and it's not on the basis of works. When he says here, not on the basis of works, I think the most specific, most directly clear thing that he's talking about is that it's not on the basis of of being among the people who commit all of the acts of the Old Testament Jewish law. It's not about the works of circumcision. It's not about the works of keeping kosher. It's not about being among those who would do this law and that law and these things. It's not about those who would go through the process of conversion to Judaism. And it's not about this idea that somebody, just because they are born among the Jewish people, is automatically saved. That's not what the Bible says at all. No, it's by grace. We believe, as God has been teaching us through the book of Romans all along for these last couple of years, that God's salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's true whether you're Jew, Gentile, Barbarian, Greek, whatever else there is that's listed in Romans or anywhere else, it is grace, grace alone. He said back in Romans 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? When I hear that, Part, part of the Pharisee in my heart just wants to jump up and say, but, 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 it, but no, it's just so clear. It, to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It is a gift. It's not a wage. This, by the way, it's not new in the New Testament. Psalm one nineteen eighty eight. In your steadfast love... Give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. You hear that? He doesn't say, I will keep your rules so that you will reward me with life. No, he says, give me life so that I can keep the testimonies of your mouth. Hmm. 
Or as it says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which we thought up ourselves so that we could earn something from God. No, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see that? It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The works come because we've been saved by grace, not so that we can receive grace. It it is the other way around. It's so backwards to the way that the world works, but it's exactly what God does. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace alone. If you haven't received the grace of God in Jesus, receive it. It says, it said back, at, I'm preaching last week's sermon now, but he said, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That was the last verse in chapter 21, and maybe you have continued in disobedience and being contrary to God. Maybe you even put up with your family dragging you to church every Sunday, and you're proud of the fact that you continue in disobedience and disbelief. God is still handing out, or he is still holding out a hand of mercy and an offer of salvation. Take it. Take it. Trust in Jesus. Know that it's Jesus alone who saves, grace alone, nothing you could give him. And when you receive it, take it as grace alone and rejoice in that. Guys, as we've taken this grace, if we've trusted in Jesus, I want to go back and I want to remind us, will God reject his people? By no means, by no means. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you've given us in the scriptures. I pray that you'd help us to understand them properly. Uh, Father, we thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ who have put together uh, the things of Israel and the church and the things of the future and how these plans and promises will unfold. We thank you for those who interpret them differently than we do, yet within the bounds of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we will be straightened out one day in these things, and I pray that none of those issues would become divisions or stumbling blocks for us. But God, above all, we just pray that you would exalt Jesus. Uh, We pray that you would exalt Jesus in our own hearts as we've received his grace. We pray that you would exalt Jesus in others' hearts, And God, we pray, even as we prayed this morning, thy kingdom come, we pray that those who are among that ethnic people who who comprised that earthly kingdom that you established in the Old Testament, we pray that more and more of the Jewish people would be brought into your kingdom of grace through faith in Jesus to be part of that true spiritual Israel, to be part of those that you would raise up to have the faith of Abraham, which is faith in Jesus And God, we pray that you continue to bring in more people as well from all the nations, from this nation, from those where our missionaries are. But God, we pray that you would put your people together. Thank you for choosing a remnant by grace. And we pray that you would bring about the salvation of that remnant where they haven't yet heard and keep us. Lord, above all, we thank you for your character. We know that your promises won't fail because you are the God who will not change, and therefore we are not consumed. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.